for our review. It's time for a big time review. Big movie. One that was, of course, like all the movies coming out right now, delayed multiple, multiple times due to COVID. And now we finally get to feast our eyes on it. And that, of course, is Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Dune, based on the Mm. 1965 Frank Herbert classic sci-fi epic. Um, This movie has been attempted multiple times. (laughs) They they did one in, what was it, 1985, somewhere around there. And then another one in 2000, which was a really poor attempt. Um, And the sci-fi channel. Sci-fi that channel. That that's one. right. That's right. It was. It was Ouch. not. It was not a. It was not like a theatrical release type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which man, kudos to whoever at Sci-Fi Channel thought that was a good idea. They're like, okay, so I know it sounds ambitious, but hear me <laughs> out. <laughs> We've got William Hurt in the cast, and I think we can pull this off. Yeah. Oh Lord! Uh, but we're we're of course talking about Dune. Uh, this is, you know. Many people before it came out were saying if there was going to be another Star Wars, another Lord of the Rings, something like that for this generation outside of the MCU, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be it. And so Kirk and I are here now to talk about that. So Kirk, I am synopsing this week. Mm-hmm. I'll, I will do that. But then we're going to talk about viewing experience because you and I had two very different viewing experiences. And I think that it will be relevant potentially to our reviews. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but let's talk about Dune. So funny story about Dune. I'm reading the book right now. I was hurrying to try to finish it before it came out. Um, That did not happen as a father of of two small children. It did not Mm -hmm. happen, but I made it to the halfway point in the film and I was like, darn, I'm going to go see this movie because I had read nothing about this movie going into it. I'm going to go see this movie. I'm going to get spoiled on a bunch of stuff and I'm going to come home and not want to finish the book because I'm going to get spoiled on everything that happened. Yada, yada, yada. Hilarious thing. The movie is only the first half of the book. So everything that happened in the movie, I already knew. And so I came (laughs) home and I told my wife, I was like, Hey, you know, what's really weird is I just saw this movie and I, I've read half the book and I knew everything that happened. So like what happens in the rest of this book? Just like nothing nothing at all. And so then I Googled it and realized it was only the first half of the book, Um, which is a good call because the book, as I move into the synopsis portion of this, the book is extraordinarily long. It's an extraordinarily Mm -hmm. long book. I I have the hardback and also the audio book, and I'm sort of using the hardback as a glossary. Um, the, The audio book is 21 hours long. So I don't know what that translates to in pages, but it's very long. <laughs> For comparison, uh, Ron Chernow's Hamilton biography is 35 hours long, and that thing is like, it's, it's like Ulysses. It's, it's insanely, wow. insanely long. Um, so this book is, is hefty, but they only focus on the first half. So Dune, the world of Dune, um, to, to give a, a brief synopsis, I would say basically there is a family called the Atreides. They are one of the ruling houses of this imperial order of the known universe. And they work for the emperor of the Imperium as one of his, um, you know, they rule fiefs in his name for his kingdom. And they live on a planet called Caladan, but they've just been told that they are to move to the planet Arrakis, also known as Dune, the desert planet, to relieve the Harkonnens, which is another uh, family and rule, of their duties uh, taking care of that planet. Now, the thing with Arrakis is that harsh living conditions, super hot, no moisture, desolate desert wasteland, but it is home to the most valuable resource in the entire known universe, which is, they just refer to it as the spice. It, it has all these different properties. They use it for space travel, etc. The crux of this whole plot is basically that the Emperor is doing this to basically start a war between the Harkonnens and the Atreides that the Emperor is behind because he doesn't like how popular the Atreides family and particularly Duke Leto Atreides is within the uh, Imperium and he feels like he is a threat to the throne. And so this is all some very 
well-planned conspiracy to destroy the Atreides family with the Harkonnens and start this huge war. Um, our main character is Paul Atreides, who is the son of the Duke and ends up being the, you know, the protagonist as the Duke. Again, we do spoiler full reviews. So just if that was the last chance escape hatch, if you haven't Get seen out. the movie, um, as the Duke dies, Paul finds himself in a place of power. Um, Paul is an interesting case because while he is the, the heir of the Duke, he's also the son of a Bene Gesserit witch who has powers and has been training him in the Bene Gesserit way. And so um, he is believed on this planet to be a sort of Messiah figure, someone who the prophecy spoke of. He's got these witch-like powers as well as now the dukedom. So he has a throne and that is sort of where our story starts. And, uh, you know, as a result of the betrayal, he is now trapped on Arrakis and has to decide what his next moves are to sort of pick up the pieces of everything that, that went down. So yeah. Anything mm -hmm. else? I know that that's like trying to do Dune in <laughs> two minutes is near impossible, but, uh, hopefully I didn't miss anything. No. In fact that it's, to someone who has never been introduced to it, it's a little difficult. Now, I watched the original um, many months ago when I when I realized, hey, this thing's coming to theaters. I better watch the OG uh, and figure out what that first adaptation of the book looks like. So it's it was a little easier for me to hop right into all the lingo and the houses and the war. Um, but I imagine that someone who has not had that kind of introduction or has read the book, started reading the book, it might be a little alarming. But one thing that I think the director does to kind of entice you to attempt this movie is he makes it very clear each party. So like even yes. if you can't remember which which group is which, which family is which, you know, you're going to know the good guys and the bad guys and the in-betweens very yep. easily. Yep. And like, and like, yeah, the in-betweens exactly, Kirk. Like, we don't trust this person yet, <laughs> you know, yep. like might, might be good, might be bad, might be both, but we definitely don't trust them. Like that is definitely <laughs> clear. And I think it's a great point and, and something that I'm sure we'll talk about, but Dune, maybe even more so than something like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars is tough to spoon feed people. It just mm -hmm. is. There's a massive glossary of terms. There is a huge universe full of different, people and houses and all this stuff, you know, it, and it's just a little bit, I, I don't really even know how to put my finger on it, but it, it's just, is a little bit harder and less straight to the brain than something like a Lord of the Rings, something like a game of game of Thrones, star Wars. It just is a little bit harder to, to feed people. So we'll talk about whether or not Denis Villeneuve um, did that in his adaptation, but let's, let's get down to it right now. Um, I'm kicking things off with, our first award that we always give out, which is, and the Oscar goes to, which goes to the best actor in the film. For me, it's Timothy Chalamet, our Paul Atreides. I, I think um, something this movie does incredibly well is the characterizations, like you said, Kirk. Understanding the difference between good and bad, but also just understanding, um, you know, carving out a really nice niche for all the characters. It's something that the book has done really well, and it's something that Denis Villeneuve did really well, whether it be, Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho, um, Josh Brolin's Gurney Halleck, Rebecca Ferguson's uh, Lady Jessica. They all are really carved out into these nice, easy-to-digest characterizations that still bring a lot of pop and dynamism to it. And Paul Atreides is at the center of all this. And I think for Timothy Chalamet, you know, you... I heard a bunch of people, actually, my sister told me this this weekend. I know the name, but I have no idea who this guy is. Absolutely. His name has been around. He was, of course, in Little Women. He was in Lady Bird. He was in Call Me By Your Name. He's he's an up-and-coming actor. A lot of people think he's the next big thing. This was our first chance to really see if he could handle it. And for, for my money, he passed with flying colors. I think I what I was worried about... Um, personally, is that we were going to get the same like angsty, brooding Timothy Chalamet that we've we've basically gotten some version of in every movie that he's been in, including Little Women, which I actually liked his performance in that. But there needed to be more here for Paul because Paul is a complex character, 
And I needed to see control from Timothy Chalamet to understand this is the beginning of a character who's figuring out who he is. This is the beginning of a huge story arc for a character that I have to keep my ambitions in check with this performance and make sure that I'm really under control. And I thought he did all of that. I thought the, you know, the physical acting was stellar. I thought the, you know, him in combat sequences was better than I was expecting. Um, his relationship with Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho, the brotherly sort of bond that they shared brought some light, like levity to the film, brought some personality to the film and to Paul. Um, and I think Timothy just delivered what I would consider a really solid, good performance for our protagonist to get this thing kicked off. And I was, you know, I think it was a tough assignment and I thought he did a good job. I was, I was pleasantly surprised cause I was frankly a little bit nervous about it, but I think, for his first big blockbuster, uh, job well done for Timothy Chalamet. Hmm. Timothy Chalamet. You know, we always disagree on Timothy. We do. We Every time. Do. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> oh, Timothy. I will say, he's not my pick, but I will say, having seen the 1980s version with Kyle MacLachlan, uh, much, much better than that performance <laughs> because... <laughs> That was a very 80s performance or 70s. I can't remember when the first one came out. 80s, yeah. 80s, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. My Oscar goes to Mr. Oscar Isaac. It's that simple. I mean, uh, the, this, the supporting actor would go to his beard, which is just impeccable. Beautiful. I mean, it carries so much, um, so much of the movie just on his jawline, you can tell. But what we always get, what we always get out of this guy, Oscar Isaac, is something unique. You can see the wheels turning in his eyes. You can feel um, every every unique mannerism that he ties into that character. You can tell the, the inflections of his voice are tied to what that person would do, what this leader, this general, this duke, this king, if you will, would would lead these people and above all of that he's got this wonderful heart uh, and known direction we, we see him interact with uh, Stilgar of Dune uh, Stilgar's like a native of Dune if if I'm correct in that sense and uh, Stilgar comes to him and says oh you're you're leading our people now all right well just stay out of my way and Oscar <laughs> Isaac's like yeah no problem we're just here to make things as good as we can and that there's little interactions like that that just make it seem like yes why can't it be like that why can't we have people in these leadership roles who are not um, tyrants or not so egotistical uh, oscar isaac uh, takes on the role of i'm here to lead i'm not here to dominate or to be a tyrant or to be a dictator i'm here to put it up to bring it all together like a community um, and you got that just out of his performance and what a death scene. What a death scene. Goes out fighting Epic. and just gets destroyed. Oh, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that we won't see him in Dune Part 2, but man, he killed it, literally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, I hate to do this and I because I, I, I feel like there are so many scene stealer candidates in this movie. I, like I said, I, lit, I rattled off the cast and there are more that I didn't even name. I mean, huge cast. I mean, it's it's honestly like I cast this movie. It like if somebody said <laughs> make Dune and you get to pick any director, any cast, like these guys would have been showing up. It wouldn't maybe not exactly the same. I think they did an incredible job, but just like these are literally all of my favorites: Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, jo Josh Brolin. I mean Javier Bardem. Like these are people that I freaking love so much. And Denis Villeneuve behind the camera. Like come on. Um, but I, I did say I hate to do this, and that's I have to choose Oscar Isaac for my scene stealer. I mean, holy crap. I cannot tell you how much I love this performance. I, I really can't. I'm shocked by how much I love this performance because, like you said, Kirk, I mean, Duke Leto Atreides goes out probably halfway through the film, and that's the main reason he's a scene stealer instead of my, my best actor is just screen time alone. But the impact that he makes with his limited screen time is incredible. Duke Leto is a really interesting character because he, and they embody this so well in the movie, he is just this larger-than-life guy. You know, he is a Superman, Clark Kent type of guy. He is 
everything you want a leader to be. And, and it, he's designed that way because Paul has to see him as, you know, we have to see him the way that Paul sees him, which is he is untouchable, unflappable, just totally under control of every situation and has this warmth and heart to him. And in the book, I, I love it. Lady Jessica sort of describes this naive honor, sense of honor that he has where He's very romantic about honor. And you can see that in this character because Oscar Isaac understood the assignment so well. Um, when the Imperium shows up and they they pull out the big scroll and they're like, you know, you guys are going to Arrakis, basically. And he's like, you know, there is no call we do not accept. There is no, you know, there is no call we do not answer. There is no job we do not accept. Well, I, I forget the line, but just the look in his eyes when he delivers that and, and the pride and... It's just awesome. And and then you have the intimate moments where he's talking to Paul about, you know, people are chosen to lead, and, and if it's not for you, then you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be, which is my son. And just looking into his eyes, like you said, you can see the wheels turning. Just such an honest interpretation of this character. Um, it's remarkable. And, and Oscar Isaac continues to amaze me. I think he does a really good job in this role. It sucks that he dies halfway through this movie, but he does go out in a blaze of glory, and his acting is incredible throughout. So he's my pick amongst a, a, an army of possible picks. It had to be Oscar Isaac. So good job, mm-hmm. Kirk. I, I think we are in lockstep on that for sure. Yes, and maybe we'll get a, Mu, a Mufasa Simba moment oh, in part two. See, that's, that's the great thing about this too is that I haven't read the rest of the book, so I don't get to be that like tool guy who's like, well, you know, just wait and see what's going like, I don't know. So I would be that guy usually, but I'm not because I honestly don't know. So it's, it's, it's best case scenario, actually. Excellent. My, scene oh, stealer. it's your turn. Just no, kidding. no, scene stealer. Oh, is it my turn? Yeah. <laughs> okay. My scene stealer goes to Mr. Jason Momoa. Yeah. Buddy. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to say I was immediately uh, turned off by his character name. That was something that I had forgotten from the first film or that I maybe even didn't hear in the first film. They really don't play that character up as much um, in the first in the first iteration of this. Uh, I have to say I'm assuming the metaphor with Idaho is that he's a cowboy. Um, You know, he marches to the beat of his own drum. You know, he's out there. He is just, uh, he's kind of wild sometimes, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't look like a soldier, uh, per se. And when he first comes out, I gotta say, I was like, oh no, here comes Aquaman, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I was. And then as he was interacting with Timothy Chalamet, I, I saw something kind of light up in, in him, uh, kind of like how he was the best thing about the justice league crew. He was the the strongest contender in that group of actors because Ben Affleck was kind of checked out because you know, alcoholism, but Jason Momoa in this scene, what I, in this role, what I saw is that he really does care about the character work. He really does, uh, own it. He's not winging it at all. He's really developing something special. And it was really cool to see to see in this in this particular film. We see him come back um, after we think that he's lost, and he's he gets shaved up, and he goes into battle, and he also goes out like a baller, uh, just saving uh, saving Paul. As as at that point, he knows that he Paul Atreides is the Duke after our Oscar Isaac is killed, and saves him and Rebecca. Uh, Rebe- sorry, Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica saves them in this kind of tunnel. Uh, just to get them out of the way from the the Harkonnen coming after them. I want to say something. Yes. Does he survive? I don't know, Kirk. I actually don't. Where I'm at right now is the same thing as the movie, and mm-hmm. he is presumed dead, just the way that they left the movie. So okay. there is a shot uh, when he first approaches. Uh, what what do they call the the native? Uh, the Fremen. Atreides. The Fremen. That's right. When he's approaching the Fremen, they've they've escaped. They've escaped so many things. They've escaped the big worm, and he's he's walk. They're walking through the rocks. It looks like, it looks like Jason Momoa, his eyes. So I don't know what that means. Well, and and Paul has a vision mm-hmm. where he sees 
this is before they even go to Arrakis, mm-hmm. where he sees Jason Momoa in the he sees Duncan Idaho with the Fremen. Yes. Which, I mean, ultimately he ends up becoming, he gets brought into the Fremen ranks and trained by them and all of that stuff. But he sees them like with Chani and that whole group that he ends up with at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I definitely like, I do not know, but I hope that he lives on. Yeah. Is there a reality that possibly Duncan Idaho was a Fremen all along? No. Okay. That's I, fine. I don't think so. I don't think so, but <laughs> I do think there's definitely a reality in which he survives. For okay, sure. Cool. Like that, that death scene to me wasn't definitive. Um, and they built that character so much and they cast Jason Momoa. I don't know. I, I feel like there's a chance he comes back. There's a lot of muscle tissue you have to go to to kill him. A lot of muscle tissue, ladies and gentlemen. So bravo, Jason Momoa. You get my my scene stealer. Also, if we're talking Photoshop, uh, what, what am I saying? Foreshadowing. I almost said Photoshop. Photoshop. If we're talking <laughs> foreshadowing, my brain is totally gone at this point. It's 1145. But if we're talking foreshadowing, there is, I can't remember if this is the book or the movie, but it doesn't matter, I guess, if we're talking about Duncan Idaho potentially returning, where they talk about the Sardaukar, which are the um, Imperial Army, are supposed to yeah. be like unkillable. But the Fremen kill these guys like it's no no big deal. I mean, they're popping out of the sand just slaying these guys like no mm-hmm. problem. Um, Duncan Idaho was trained by the Fremen to fight. You know, he lived among their ranks for a little while. So there could be some foreshadowing there where they're like, oh, you know, Duncan Idaho is a great warrior, but he's no Fremen. Well, now he kind of is. And he went hand-to-hand with the Sardaukar and the Harkonnen warriors maybe he comes out alive from that whole thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but Kirk, I, 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 you know, I have to say I'm a little concerned about what your score is going to be from this movie, considering both of the characters that you picked died. So you probably have some <laughs> ill will <laughs> towards the, the, at least the plot and story of the movie since your favorite guys are getting picked off, but only you time know? will tell. All right. Moving right along to showstopper. For me, it's the scale, and I think it has to be the scale. I mean, the 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 main question, like I said at the beginning, whenever you're making this movie, is it's like, wow, that is super ambitious. Can it be pulled off? And so we talk about it a lot of times when we talk about adapted works. If you're going to adapt something to the screen, you have to have a plan for it. It's not as simple as just take the story and move it to the screen. There has to be a reason for it. There has to be a plan for it. Denis Villeneuve had a plan (laughs) like a really good one which involved you know scaling doesn't necessarily just mean make it big scaling means fit it to the medium literally and so that involves story that involves understanding that this is a blockbuster production and trying to cater it towards mass appeal that involves make you know world building the scaling that you traditionally think of world building cgi set production design all of that. And I think every single box is checked on the scale because like you said, Kirk earlier, they do, you know, it's a lot to digest for someone who's new to this world, but they do a good job of making you feel pretty comfortable that you at least know where things are going and that you'll figure it out sort of later, which is good. There's a lot of things that, you know, they pull out of the book and like they don't include as much in here. And I think the stuff that they chose are huge chunks in the book and make sense in the book, but, but are good things to pull out for the movie. Like they chose all the right stuff to remove. Like, for example, whenever the whole traitor thing is happening, Dr. UA is the traitor who betrays Duke Leto in the book. There's all, there's this whole thing where so many people think that it's actually lady Jessica who's betraying them. They don't touch that at all in the movie. But at the same time, Denis Villeneuve does a great job of planting this seed, a, a tiny seed of distrust in Jessica. So, you know, as, as a fan, you're like, eh, I don't know about her, which is all that it needs to accomplish. You know, that's all the whole thing needs to do. And so that was just a very good intentional choice where he's going, listen, we're scaling this to a two and a half hour movie. That's got to go, but we'll keep this part of it. And so that's the kind of stuff that you have to do. I thought the movie looked incredible, sounded incredible. Oh yeah, medium. I saw it on IMAX, which is the thing that Denis Villeneuve was like, you have to see it on IMAX. It was shot on IMAX. If you watch it at home, like you're wrong. Um, So I was like, I'm going to give it a whirl. The thing that I felt like was so immersive about it 
was the sound more than the picture. Because on IMAX, you have, you have speakers above you and around you. And when the sandworm is coming through the sand, your seats were literally shaking, which was such Whoa. a cool immersive experience. It felt like it was going to come up from the ground below you. Um, so that, that, that's part of scaling too, right? Is like making this an epic film. So, you know, those are a few different examples, but just in general, it looked like Dune. It, it looked like Dune. If you've read the book, you'd go, that's Dune. And if you're new to it, you go, wow, this is cool. It, it just, it was really well done and really thoughtful. Um, and for those of you who are wondering like, what does it matter if I watch it at home or versus IMAX? It probably like, let's be honest to most people. It really doesn't make a freaking difference at all. But to Denis Villeneuve, the difference is aspect ratio. Okay. So at home you have a 16, nine aspect ratio, which means the screen is about one and, th- and three quarters, almost two times wider than it is tall in IMAX. It's the screen is one and a half to one aspect ratio. So it's a little bit of a taller screen. That's not, as wide. So it creates like a more a, a vision that's supposed to be more attuned to like how you look. Like we don't all look out of our eyes in widescreen when we look in like, you know, full screen. So it's supposed to create that. And then also the, you know, the cameras are like some ungodly 16 K or what, <laughs> like who even, what does that even mean? But anyway, that's what they're trying to get. But ultimately you're fine if you watched it at home. It's okay. You, like Denevil News is not going to come break your neck in the middle of the night. Like it's it's going to be okay. But there is a slight difference. So I just figured I would explain that real quick. In summary, my showstopper, the scale, the scale of the movie. <laughs> Kirk, you're up. Thank you for supporting those who did watch it at home. Yeah, Cam, of course. Like myself, like myself. Um, my showstopper is going to go to the sound design. Ladies and gentlemen, the sound design. Ooh. Yeah, pretty specific. Yeah, you touched on it already uh, about how how cool and immersive it was. Well, I watched this bad boy. I started watching it uh, with my wife, Aubrey, uh, Cam's sister, and she bowed out of it. It wasn't her... (laughs) <laughs> wasn't definitely her not her style <laughs> <laughs> i said no problem i'm, I'm gonna keep trekking on here like she likes Pop lord my... of the rings and stuff like she likes lord of the rings she likes star wars but just immediately whenever she t- just i saw it after her and and like she had already told me that she bowed out after 30 minutes and immediately as i started watching it i was like yeah this is not her flavor <laughs> like, no. just just not <laughs> Not for her. So what I did is I, I shut all the lights off because um, I need to watch movies in darkness and um, she will fall asleep if any if the lights are off right. and put my AirPods in connected to my Apple TV. And I just uh, just got uh I got my own immersive experience, experience, got my Philips Hue lights on the back of my TV, right? I'm going. And what what a wonderful wonderful experience that was you could take all the dialogue out of this film and pretty much know everything that's going on and i mean that um it's it's very um it's it it takes on its own character which is the whole goal of sound it really narrates on a whole other level that i don't think all movies uh, really take the care to do so so when when we see um when we see our characters just like marching uh through through the sand you know and they have to do their sand walk it's so smooth but the smoothness of their footsteps on top of the blowing sand um when we have the score rise in in uh, in conjunction with um their movements uh, in fight sequences um even down to um down to the on Arrakis and the dream sequences, the wind blowing specifically Zendaya's uh, kind of veil. It's like all of those touches you could feel through your ears. Like it's that, it's that smooth and that rich. And I loved, I loved listening to it. I really did. Um, And as someone who is like not, not diagnosed as partially deaf, but I think I probably am. (laughs) And I mean that in the most honest sense, um, it was very refreshing to hear that. And one of my biggest pet peeves is the the rise and fall of volume. So that way, if you're like talking really softly and yes. then you have a big action yes. sequence, it is like, da, 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 and it like destroys you. Um, 
none of that. It was all very even, despite the very vast changes in scenes at times. So sound design, bravo. Yeah, I, I agree with the leveling. The leveling was sweet. Like in IMAX, it was loud, 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 the whole time loud, all the time loud, like shaking your chest loud, which I was <laughs> totally fine with. I went with my nephews who are, uh, you know, like 13 and 11, and they walked out and said, that was so loud. <laughs> but I was like, that was awesome. You know, so I, I get it. But it was... It wasn't like you couldn't hear whenever they were talking and then you were blown away. Like it all it all mixed really well, which is something that so many movies and shows suck at in this day and age. It's shocking. Yes. Um, it's hard. As someone who mixes a podcast on a regular basis, it is hard to get voices to sound the same. But still, like you get paid lots of money to do it, make it happen. Um, yeah, good call. Also the score. You, you mentioned it, but Hans Zimmer was in his bag, my friends. This was like a totally <laughs> different, this was a totally different score for Hans Zimmer, but was awesome. I adored it. I thought it was so good. Um, okay, other side, director shoes and what notes we have for Denis Villeneuve, um, which who am I to critique the master? But I, I will, nonetheless. Um, for me, it's the third act. I thought, and, and you know, inherently it's going to struggle. They, they sort of chose to take a book which has its own, you know, build and climax and resolution, cut it in half, and then have to sort of manufacture a climax and resolution, which actually works out really well because as you're reading a book, as you're reading the book, the, the betrayal of Duke Leto is huge. I mean, it's like, whoa, I cannot believe that just happened. Um and yet you know it's coming, but it serves as a great catalyst and, and climax for the film as well. But I think the third act is where you start to feel that like, okay, you know, this cutting in half has its, has its disadvantages too. Because I feel like after they link up with Dr. Kynes um, in, the, in the like Fremen base, the Sardaukar come and kill maybe <laughs> Duncan Idaho and, and Lady Jessica and and uh, Paul go their separate ways or, or go together away from Dr. Kynes, like it sort of loses some steam. Like even though they're getting, they're, they're racing the ornithopter across the desert being chased by the Harkonnens, they fly into the storm. Like it just doesn't have the same thump that that massive battle sequence at um, Arakeen, you know, the capital of Arrakis, it doesn't have the same level of that or even the fight scene with Duncan Idaho at the Fremen base. Like it just, it never gets back to that, but there's still like a good 45, maybe 45 is a bit long, but there's still a good 30 minutes left at that point. It just kind of like peters out until you get this great scene where Paul, you know, has to fight. Uh, I forget the character's name, but he, he has to fight for his, uh, his Jamis. Yes, there you're right. Uh, he has to fight for his keep amongst the Fremen and amongst Stilgar's uh, crew. Um, it's a good scene and a good way to end the movie, but there's that in-between point where, you, you know, it just, it loses a little bit of momentum, which makes sense. I'm giving them a slight pass on it, but it, it does, it is my one big critique of the film, I would say. Kirk, Wonderful. what about you, my friend? I thought the opposite. I thought it had a rough intro, a rough, rough intro. You know, we get introduced. I said I love the sound design, but I will um, go back on that a little bit. In the introduction to The Voice, which is this this kind of passed down power from the Benny, how do you say it? Benny Benny Jesseret, yeah. Benny Gesserit, um, of the people of Lady Jessica's people, uh, this sort of uh, religious being, uh, think of them like Jedi, if you will, uh, to, to have the closest relationship uh, of what you can sort of connect this to. And there's this power, it's the voice, it's kind of like the power of uh, of suggestion, if you will, and they can, they can make you do things with it. I thought it was... Not well done. I understood that he wasn't going to come out guns a blazing. 
and have this booming voice. Um, speaking of Lion King, it's kind of like the roar, like Simba's like gearing up for it, you know, and he gets a little bit better as the movie goes on. And then uh, when they're escaping, you know, after they get trapped, when they're escaping, uh, he even even says, you know, ungag, ungag the girl. And the mom just like Lady Jessica, Re- Rebecca Ferguson just dominates and has them kill up themselves. Um, but I, I, and I think we're gearing up for, um, for Paul in part two to really just own it. But I thought that introduction, the sound design was not there for me. It was very, very unsettling, not in a, a good narrative direction for me. I also uh, was not aware. And, you know, maybe this just comes down to how easy it is it to tell this story that Lady Jessica was not married to the Duke, that she was uh, his concubine. I felt like that should have been um, easier to understand since they're always together. Um, she's always at his side, you know, at the at the ceremony of accepting uh, their uh, their takeover uh, of, of, of Arrakis. And I also felt, and this is just me, just me. Sorry, Cam. No, Don't opinion, yell at me. opinions are good. I also felt that um, Timothy Chalamet, uh, that we did get a lot of the brooding. We did get a lot of the brooding. But I felt that in Act 3, the lights started to finally come on. Really, when we got to that fight, and the final couple of uh, pieces of dialogue that he has, those were his strongest moments. And I understand his character arc and growth, but I wish that we could have found a different place for him to start. I don't know what that place should have been, but it felt like Timothy Chalamet neutral zone uh, at the beginning of it. And so it was just kind of the same the same thing that I've seen. Luckily, the supporting cast... Um, was strong enough to carry that through, but it was a little distracting, unfortunately for me. So I think, um, just a couple of pieces there, not a lot, uh, because I did, I did say that the, that, uh, Denis Villeneuve did a great job of, you don't exactly, um, you're not exactly familiar with these terms, familiar with the way words are formed. Um, Atreides, Arrakis, um, Stilgar, you know, Thufir, Hawat, you know, all the different. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Those don't roll off the tongue. Those are of this world and as they should be, but I still thought he did a good job of, of, cementing those and making sure we heard them enough and not overkill to, um, to understand who was who. So those are my, those are a couple of my qualms with the film. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think you bring up a good point, which is, um, you know, there, there are things that they chose not to explain. I think you have to decide if that's worthwhile or not, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and, and my view on that is skewed because I, I had the, a little bit of background on it having just read the book, but um, yeah, the lady Jessica thing, I can totally see that. I mean, you there, there even is a, there's a plot reason for it and, and it is important. You know, the Duke loves Jessica obviously um, and, and treats her very much like a wife, but t- intentionally leaves himself unmarried so that the emperor will, will see value in that because the emperor has unmarried daughters. And so there's potential for a power pact if they can get the Duke to to marry one of the Emperor's daughters. Well, shoot, they should have said that. I Maybe agree. they did. I, I, you know what? I don't even know. I, I don't remember. If they did, that just tells you it wasn't very emphasized. But yeah, I think I think it's probably halfway through the movie before they even reference Jessica as a concubine. Um, so it is it is a little bit confusing. I think on your point. Now, this is not a disagreement with you, but on your point about the opening scene and how they open the movie, that, you know, that was just, he really had a Sophie's Choice there. I mean, there was just no, yep. the way that the book opens is with the scene with the Reverend Mother. You know, the the fear is the mind killer, hand in the box, um, you know, Gom Jabbar situation, which mm-hmm. definitely could not be the way that he started the movie because that's, a lot. And especially when you read the book, you're like, whoa, whoa, what's happening? Somebody's <laughs> dying. Somebody's hands in a box. What's a gum jabar? Like, you're like, what? Um, so he couldn't start there. But yeah, I agree. I, I just don't think, I really don't think there was a good way to start it. 
Um, it's difficult because that's how the 1980s film starts, Hand in the Box. Does it? And yeah. Yeah, yeah. It does. And it is alarming. And you're like, where am I? What's happening? <laughs> um, it's just a hard thing to kick off because it's so different. I don't know if more establishing shots <laughs> of of Atreides would have been better. Um, maybe, maybe a, you know, I, I thought about this briefly. Maybe a Paul Atreides narrator feature would have helped, mm-hmm. you know, a, a little bit, you know, because they do this thing in the book where they're like Arrakis, desert planet, Dune. They kind of repeat that over and over again, mm-hmm. and it sort of sets the tone. Um, there could have been a, there could have been maybe, maybe not even Paul, maybe a third, third party, third person omniscient uh, narrator, some sort of tool to sort of tie things together and to put the put the viewers yeah. at ease before they get vaulted into this very complex world of dune um yeah i think it's a i think it's a fair critique to be yep. to be sure um okay let's move into final thoughts and scores i mean <laughs> I, I i i liked it a lot i really liked it i don't i don't want to say that i loved it but i really think it's a strong a strong start to what i think will be a very successful franchise now I'll be interested to see, because I really haven't looked at it, I'll be interested to see what the audience reaction has been to the movie because I don't feel like it's necessarily super mass appeal focused. I feel like if people go into it with an open mind, they will find it appealing. But I feel like there's also, like the Harkonnens are a rough bunch that people might be turned off by. Um, the aesthetic, you know, at times it's at times it's a little bit... Um, uh, brown, <laughs> just like tan sand mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And I think they did everything book accurate, but I just don't know that people will find it tasteful in the way that they find things like, I don't know, like these like neon cyberpunk type movies that are coming out sci-fi like, like Blade Runner 2049. There's a certain uh, like intrinsic appeal to that that I don't necessarily think that Doom has. So I'll be interested to see that, but if we're talking about accuracy to the book, if we're talking about making a sci-fi epic, scaling it, you know, the mix between practical and CGI, which I know something that C- Christopher Nolan talked about that he thought Denis Villeneuve did a great job on. Um, shocker, but I agree with Chris Nolan. <laughs> he did a he did awesome on that. The score, you know, I I don't I stopped short of going. This is a movie where you remember where you were when you first saw it. I don't know that it's that. Um, Maybe it maybe it will be as the franchise builds out a little bit more, but like Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring was, and maybe that's an unfair standard to set. But when you saw that movie in theaters, you were like, "This is something," you know, mm-hmm. like this is the start of something really culturally significant. And this it, is the start <laughs> yeah, of something new. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and again, I'm not saying that this isn't that, but it didn't it didn't immediately conjure that up for me. So I'm leaving it out of the nines. I have some critiques as I mentioned. Um, but overall I think really high level of difficulty on this project, really ambitious, like ultra, ultra ambitious. And I think it was, I think they, you know, kind of hit it out of the park, all things, all things considered. So for me, it's an eight, nine out of 10. It, it comes just short of that, that nine range. Um, but I really liked it. I really, really liked it. Kirk. Excellent. Your thoughts. Excellent. I have to tell you that just the other night as I was going into Target, because I'm basically at Target every day of my life, um, spending all of my livelihood, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this woman was purchasing a paperback copy of Dune and the, the cashier, bless her heart, she said, oh, wow, they wrote a book about the movie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh it was it was heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking. <laughs> Frank Herbert rolls over in his grave. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, the customer she said, "Oh no, the book came first. Like she was so. Um, I'm not going to destroy this girl <laughs> right now, which was good. It you was want great. cultured swine? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh man, I am interested in, in you know that effect. You know because it's got some very noticeable stars, very powerful actors, very known actors that will this attract a younger crowd? Um, not that that's why you should tell a story, but that is a part of it. Uh, is It's a part of, you know, what story can be told with who you have available to you. It's, uh, it's just a, fa- a little fascinating tidbit there. Um, I will say that I 
really thought that I would like this movie more. I don't believe my viewing experience changed that. Uh, only because asterisk 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 next to Kirk's review. <laughs> <laughs> only because I did have full sound in my ears and lights off, backlit my TV. It was just like the theater, you know, with my dog flatulating in the background i know Kirk, but the additional two inches on the top and bottom of the screen that ma- <laughs> i'm just kidding you know all i missed was more of timothy chalamet's hair that's all true I missed, okay <laughs> what what i think that um what i think that this movie may find better is the age that comes with it part two i think will really make this shine if part two is done well there is also a series coming out dune sisterhood which is going to go into more of the benny i never say it right benny benny jesserit's um lore and i believe that all of that together will make this powerful. I think the vision of all of it together will make it strong. Be- I, it, it's literally a triangle. It's It will stand together well, but on their own, I don't think that we have solid individual pieces. Now, that said, I, al- I almost anticipate uh, Dune Sisterhood to be the strongest of them all because it's a mini series, And because you have so much lore that you have to cook through in this, I almost wonder if we could have had, you know, three or four 90 minute um, episodes of this or three or four films, you know, planned out, uh, timed out well, if that would have served this story better uh, because it's never been successful. Um, it's, it's successful now, but could it have been more successful? All that said, it is incredible to watch it's incredible to listen to it has some very fine acting performances uh, and some not so fine and i will say that this gets a 6.5 out of 10 kernels for me dune oops i accidentally made kirk really big thank you <laughs> that's your that's your encore that's dune that's our that's those are our scores kirk and i had a nice nice chunky difference there which is good a little it gives you guys a little bit to chew on if you're I don't know, still considering it, or if you've already formed your opinion, we want to hear from you, of course. Um, But thank you for listening. And we have lots of good stuff coming up. I mean, we've got, I listed some movies earlier last night in Soho, uh, you know, The French Dispatch, don't even get me started on Eternals, which is shockingly less than two weeks away right now. Um, We're on the precipice of a really busy fourth quarter of the year as it is for everyone for all sorts of different reasons but we're very excited um hopefully we'll get you guys a halloween kills uh review you know time permitting uh, as we both do this in our free time <laughs> so right. we right. will we'll figure that out um but speaking of if yeah. you would like to donate to popcorn for breakfast i was gonna say if you would like to <laughs> ensure that we have a very regular release schedule <laughs> You can pay us for that. We have Patreon. I have Venmo. I don't care. Um, We need, we, you know, we always need help not to beg, but I'm just saying like, we're gonna, you know, right now we have to just kind of fly by the seat of our pants because that's what our life amounts to, but we love doing it and we love sharing this time with you. And we thank you for listening as always. Um, Kirk, we're going to have to do a live video of your no time to die punishment. Um, oh yes, we will. So apologies if that's a, if that's a spoiler for anyone who harkens back to our little bet. I won't say the details of the bet, but we will have to do a little video. Kirk has some punishment coming his way, which involves eating um, some snack pack yogurts in you know as pudding. many as he can in a pudding. row or something like that. Pudding. Yes. Sorry, not chocolate. Oh, chocolate pudding. That would be. I would be vomiting in, immediately. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, who's, who's to you, say I won't You said this. on the episode 10 in one minute, which I'm pretty sure is not even humanly possible at all. Mm, That's yeah. one snack pack every six seconds. There is no way. Like, legitimately, I don't think it's humanly possible. Like, I'm sure there's a Guinness <laughs> World Record for that because I know there's one for, like, most bananas eaten in a minute. So there's probably yeah. one for chocolate pudding snack packs. And yep. I just... We're going to have to figure that out. We're going to have to figure well, out if it's just, like... 10 snack packs, no breaks straight through, see what happens or what. Hmm. 
I mean, I'm not opposed to winning a Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, we could we could call them and be like, hey, we're going to try this. Uh, yeah. Get I them mean, to get the certificate ready, get yeah, their timer ready. Right? You know, I'm down. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you do have to like, I don't know. Anyway, we'll figure it out. But Kirk will have some punishment coming up. We've got lots of other fun things coming up. But until all of that, have a wonderful Halloween week and weekend. Hope you guys get a chance to listen to everything we've got coming out this week and next week. And of course, as always, we're going to give a special thank you to our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs, as well as our wonderful composers. I'm going to call them composers. Rhetoric. They created the music that you're hearing right now and all the music you hear on the show. We will see you guys next time. Talk to you then. Talk to you then.